Well, I do want to welcome Paul Hurst. Uh, Paul uh, spent the bulk of his ministry life uh, as a pastor in South Florida. He was actually pastor to one of my best friends, um, who's a pastor now in Fort Lauderdale himself. Uh, Paul knew a good friend of mine, Justin Beam, um, quite well. And um, so uh, just I'm thankful for Paul and his influence even in Justin's life. Uh, Paul was up in, in Dayton and now is uh, what we call without call. He's uh, looking for a, a church at this point in time and a, and a place where the Lord can use him. And so we're thankful that we can, um, he can be used here um, to, to bring the blessing of God's word. And so I'm thankful for Paul and uh, the little bit I've gotten to know him over the years here in our presbytery. And so Paul's going to come on up and uh, just looking forward to that time. Good morning. It is great joy to be here. I hope you know how much of a gem you have in this young man. Uh, at a time in my life where I needed care, he was the shepherd. He was the pastor with wisdom beyond his years, and, and uh, he is indeed a treasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have invoked your name. We have sung praises to you, the King, and our Heavenly Father. We have prayed and confessed our sins. We have confessed our faith, and we have heard the prayers lifted up to you on behalf of your people and your church around the world. Now we worship you in re-proclaiming your good news. Your word is a fire. It is a hammer and a sword. And we pray for the power of your spirit to speak through your word this day in spite of the failings of your servant. Let us hear from you. Let us hear from heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our reading this morning is found in the second book of Samuel, chapter 9. The Gospel of Mephibosheth. If you turn and read or follow on the screen. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the household of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dog such as I? 
Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have, bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. <laughs> now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both feet. The word of the Lord. As was said, I spent the bulk of my ministry life down in South Florida, where we have lots of hurricanes. And for 30 years, uh, I probably went through, I don't know, nine or ten, some very serious, beginning with Andrew and Wilma. Wilma uh, in uh, 2005, I believe, was a very destructive hurricane insofar as the church where I uh, was ministering. It kind of peeled the roof back and flooded the sanctuary and many terrible things. Well, I've just noticed that the first named storm of the Atlantic season has come forward, Anna, Hurricane Anna. Oh, we have an Anna. Anna, do you have a watch? No, not on. Do you have a way to keep time? I want you to wave your arms like this when it's five minutes before 11. Would you do that for me? <laughs> Thank you, Anna. And I'm sure the rest of you will be thankful as well. <laughs> you know, there's a small town just south of Jupiter, Florida, where some of the residents there hope that a hurricane comes, that it strikes their area. In fact, the bigger the better. Along the coast, the so-called treasure coast of Florida, are untold numbers of shipwrecks many of them laden with gold and treasure. One such wreck is just off of the coast of this town, uh, and it sunk after a big storm. And every once in a while, after a big storm, whether it's a hurricane or a nor'easter, it comes in, it churns up the depths of the ocean, and it spits up gold and treasure, coins, bars, jewels, gems. Just imagine yourself walking along that beach. You come upon an old chest that the waves are, in fact, trying to take back. Once it comes on shore, the lapping waves erode the sand underneath and the slant of the ocean, it pulls it back in. But you get there before that happens. And you reach it and you open it and your body tingles. And waves of excitement wash over you because therein lies an untold fortune of gold and gems. You lift out a piece a necklace laden with jewels, and then another, and you soon see that the pieces are of a fine set of treasure, and they're all meant to be together. They're matching. They're coordinating. Well, this passage today is just such a treasure chest. 
a treasure trove. Sentences are golden chains and pendants. Words are spectacular gems. And altogether, they are an inestimable treasure. This is one of the great stories of the Old Testament, and certainly it ranks high in David's life. Saul had for 20 years relentlessly pursued David in order to slay him, to diminish his reputation among the people, and to ensure that one of his own sons, Jonathan, would be named king after him. David had already been anointed, and you know the stories of Saul pursuing him and trying to pin him to the wall with a spear and trying to take his life. But you also read along that a beautiful friendship that what ended up being a covenant friendship between David and Jonathan parallels Saul's descent into madness and mayhem. Well, it came that day, both he and a number of his sons were slain in battle, and David ascends to the throne, not without trouble. There are other of Jonathan or Saul's sons that try to be king. Some say this story is a great story of the ethic of not seeking revenge, or it's about faithfulness to friends. It's about noble character in high places, and certainly it's an example of that. But this passage, this story, is a window into the very mind of God. It's a grand lesson, and it's an illustration of the way God Himself deals with men. It teaches us of how God saves sinners. It teaches us by way of the illustration of David and Mephibosheth, the way, the truth, and the life of God's saving grace toward mankind. The New Testament in the sayings of Jesus and the precept teaching of Paul clearly, precisely, explicitly delineate the structure of salvation. But this Older Testament, this older story from the Old Covenant portrays in story that beautiful doctrine. First, we find that Mephibosheth is born cursed, and a lot of other things that are really wrong. Notice that he is in a (coughs) fatally desperate condition. He's under a sentence of death. Israel had demanded to to have a king, and the nation quickly took on all of the, the attitude and disposition of a people ruled by a king. And around them, anytime there was a change in the king, there was mayhem. If a line ended, a new one came in, people died. Anytime there was a change in national leadership, the effort was to execute all possible rivals. Well, we too are born in the wrong household and by birth are under the condemnation of God. We're all children of Adam, descendants of His, and in Adam all die. Scripture teaches we were and are by nature the children of wrath. We also see that Mephibosheth is a fugitive. When news reached the survivors of the family of Saul that his sons, Saul and his sons, had been slain in battle, and that had, and then over a quick period of time, David had ascended the throne. Mephibosheth was scooped up by his nurse, and they fled in terror, fleeing, hiding, anxious to keep out of David's way. And so it is with the sinner, afraid of God, seeking to hide, just like Adam. I was afraid because I was naked, 
so I hid. We are also told that, and we're told twice, the number of testimony. Mephibosheth was lame. Verse 3, verse 13, we're told he was lame in both feet. He could not walk. He could not run. And how accurately this portrays the condition of those who are not in Christ unable to even walk in the path that leads to life because they're lame. And this is the utter inability of the sinner to meet God's requirements or even walk acceptably before Him. It's a truth written plain across all of the Scriptures. You know, walking is a very powerful biblical image. It begins in the garden. It would seem that Adam and Eve would walk with God in the garden. And it is when they heard Him walking that they hid from Him following their disobedience. All through Scripture, that walking, walk theme presents itself. We are to walk in a manner worthy of Him, the New Testament tells us. We're told that Enoch walked with God, that Noah walked before the Lord in righteousness. In order to be blessed, we ought not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Yet, this story teaches us that we are lame, without strength or ability. And we read in the Gospel of John, no man can come to me. No one can come to me. We're lame, except the Father, which uh, except uh, unless the Father uh, sends us to Him and draws us to Him. He's also lame because of a fall. Second Samuel four four. It came to pass as she made haste to flee that he fell, fell out of her arms. What a chaotic story and scene that must have been. It's believed he's about four, maybe five years old at this point. And the nurse, knowing if I stay here, maybe not David, but certainly the advocates for David, who in their zeal went around slaying and killing any of Saul's family, grabs him up and begins to run, and he shoots out of her arms and with such force that he is made lame in both feet. What an amazing, marvelous book of the Scriptures are to present us this picture of our state and how man came to be. Man was not created in the condition he is in now. He was far from being lame in both feet. When the creator, creator proclaimed him to be very good, but the faculties of man's soul are crippled, spiritually crippled as the result of the fall. As much as Mephibosheth fell, we fall in Adam. And then there is also the place where he resided. Mephibosheth dwelt in a place, he was taken to this place called Lo-Debar, or Lo-Devar. Hebrew word for no word, no word, no gospel, no grace, no rescue, no good news. It, it means a place of no pasture. It's a barren place. And that is surely the portrayal of the world in which we live, a world that provides no food for the soul, it's a great howling wilderness of things to fill up with, but nothing to nourish. There is no word of grace or redemption. This is our total inability to please God or to meet with Him. But secondly, we recognize that there is a covenant between others who Mephibosheth didn't know, and that's what rescues him. David said, is there anyone yet, anyone left of the household of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. The word kindness, chesed, Hebrew, is used three times in this passage, verse 1, 3, and 7. 
Three times. The divine number. And the word translates as mercy or compassion or love or grace or faithfulness. When the Lord made the, remade the tablets of the ten and He revealed Himself to Moses, He proclaimed of Himself, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed and truth, keeping hesed, mercy, for thousands to the third and the fourth generation. Hesed is closely related to God's covenant with His people. His hesed to His people is generous and compassionate and full of grace and mercy. And it is singularly the greatest Old Testament word describing the Lord. Saul and Jonathan and other of Saul's sons had died in battle. And following that, David's king. And he moves quickly to subdue and defeat all of the enemies of the king of, uh, of Israel. And that's recorded in the chapters preceding 9. David is now in full control. And it's said that the Lord had given him rest on every side from his enemies. All his men were now in place. And he takes a breath. And he thinks. And his thoughts turn to ask of the family of Saul. No overtures were made. No message sent to the king. No Saul descendant coming, pleading his case for mercy or seeking mercy. It is simply David who takes the initiative. And this is how our salvation is. It is God who takes the initiative. It is the shepherd who goes to seek the sheep. And so naturally it is. Uh, so as it is naturally, so it is spiritually. We all like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned his own way. But the Lord said, I am the good shepherd. I go after the one. Romans tells us there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There are none who seek after God. Or John, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit. It was God who sought Adam in the garden and prospered his redemption, providing him a covering that required death and the shedding of blood. It was God who sought out Abraham in Ur and provided him a land and all of the covenants. It was God who pursued and sought out Jacob at Bethel and repeated the covenant promises and showed him by the picture of the ladder that a mediator from heaven would secure all these things. It was God who sought out Moses in Midian and revealed his plan of redemption for his people, a redemption that had been promised covenanted 400 years earlier. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was God who sought out Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus when Saul was seeking to destroy the church and believers. It was the Lord that pursued him to reveal who was, in fact, the Savior of the world, namely Jesus. We need to notice that it, what it was that moved David to... Uh, take these efforts. I want to show him kindness for, jo <clears throat> for Jonathan's sake. It wasn't anything about Mephibosheth. He didn't know who he was. It wasn't that David found a reason outside of him. Outside, it wasn't that David found a reason about Mephibosheth that compelled him to think, oh, I, I need to show this one. It was because of the bond of love and the relationship that existed within his own heart and that of the heart of Jonathan. 
We were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. It is because of another, Christ, that God is gracious to His own people. God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you, Paul tells us in Ephesians. The Father has given the Son an inheritance of the redeemed, we find in John 17. In the first book of Samuel in chapter 20, that's where it records the story where we read of the solemn covenant between Jonathan and David in which David swore to show kindness to the house of Jonathan forever. Thus the one who here obtained kindness at the hands of the king received favor not because of anything he had done, nor because of any personal worthiness he possessed, nor because he was even known at all, but wholly on account of a covenant promise which had been made before he was even born. And it is because of that covenant between the Father and the Son that you, me, we have been redeemed. It is because of the love the Father shows toward the mediator, Jesus, that he shows us kindness not because we've lived well, or strive well, or want to live, or even we even seek after God, because prior to our being called into the faith, we don't. Also notice, thirdly, it's just him, not any of Saul's household, just Jonathan's household, just the line of the covenant promise those descending from Jonathan alone. There were still others of Saul's house that lived, but none of those received the kindness and the covenant promises of the king and were invited to eat at his table like a son. So we have here the picture of the particular atonement. And fourthly, we see that he was, I say, fetched. Here was this poor creature belonging to a family that was in rebellion against the king, lame in both feet, dwelling in a wilderness. And here is now the mighty King David on his throne in the time of his greatest power and strength with those around him eager to kill any who may be a pretender to the throne. And he has a desire to show kindness to him for the sake of the promises made to another. So, did David wait and see if someone would come to him? Did he find out about... Mephibosheth from Ziba and send a message and say, look, you know what? Make your way here. We'll be glad to have you. Did he notify Mephibosheth that if he swore an oath or did this or that, that David would receive him? Did he send him a pair of crutches and tell him, do the best you can. Make your way here. No. Verse 5 just simply says, then David sent and brought him. Now, that's a little bit weak as far as the translation's concerned. David sent and fetched him, just took him. Whoever David sent descended upon 
the home of Makir and Amiel and just took Mephibosheth and took him back to Jerusalem. This is the grace of God at work. God initiates it. The objects of his grace are completely unworthy and unable, and God acts with grace because of a covenant with another mediator, a covenant made before we were born. And this is a very clear portrait of the irresistible power of God in salvation. He fetches us. He calls us. So many hate this doctrine, this idea. So many refuse to allow its possibility that there are a number of people with whom the Lord has promised His Son before time began. These I will give to you, and I will fetch them, because none can come. None are able. All are under the curse. All are under a death sentence. All deserve the everlasting wrath of God. Not because even at this point, because of anything they have done, right or wrong. Before Jacob had done anything right or wrong, Jacob I loved. Before the twins were born, before they had done anything right or wrong, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Oh, it seems awful on its face, but oh my goodness, what gracious, gracious kindness that shows because it reminds us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are wicked in their hearts. All have fallen. All are lame and cannot walk with God. All are under a death sentence. All of us are cursed. All of us are living out the curse. And we would not seek after God. None do. We cannot come to the Savior unless the Father enables us to do that. And that is the fetching power of God's grace. David sent his men, brought him to, to Jerusalem, and David bestowed on him the hesed that he promised in his covenant with Jonathan. Irresistible grace. But also remember, we are kept. We notice from verse 13 that Mephibosheth now lives in Jerusalem. He's at the palace of the king, and he eats at the king's table even as one of his sons. Notice that David had taken from Ziba all of the lands, all of the property, all of the goods, and said, you continue to work these for him, but he's going to live with me. He's going to eat at my table. And he did so continually. If that were just this one part of the story, this is the idea of the perseverance of the saints, of God keeping his own, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. But this principle carries out later, years later in David's life when he needs to flee because of the rebellion of Absalom, Ziba gets back into the picture. Eventually, when David returns, it is Ziba who says, Mephibosheth, he tried to become king in your absence. He accuses him. He accuses Mephibosheth of something that never happened, and yet David in his graciousness keeps the covenant his place at the king's table is not lost, and we have an accuser, but he keeps us. We are Mephibosheth. You know, his name is hard to pronounce. I know another pastor in the, in the uh, Miami Valley 
he, he, no matter how many try, times he tries to pronounce Mephibosheth, he just can't get it out. It's a shibboleth to him. But it translates dispeller of shame. Saul had another son, Ishbosheth, man of shame. This one was called, at this point now, the dispeller of shame, one who destroys shame or the end of shame. And he's one of the few biblical characters who are given a second name because he, or is known by a second name, he had a different name. He had another name. In each instance of newly named people, it is the name of the covenant promise and blessing. Abram becomes Abraham, exalted father uh, or father of multitudes. Sarai becomes Sarah, princely to mother of princes. Jacob becomes Israel, from cheater and deceiver to God's people. Or Simon becomes Cephas, God has heard uh, God has heard to the rock. Saul becomes Paul, asked for or needed to small or humble. Mephibosheth is el- elsewhere named Merib Baal. Merib Baal. Merib Baal means Baal is my advocate. Mephibosheth means dispeller of shame or the end of shame. He doesn't receive this second name like others do. It just, it's in the text. It's in the Scripture. He has a name that carried the idea of an advocate for Baal, an advocate for an idol, an advocate for a false god. But now his name is Dispeller of Shame. We have indeed come upon a very great treasure. Sentences which form great necklaces with pendants, words that are invaluable gems. And these words from this text, these sentences from this passage, are among the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. I want you to remember just three things. Number one, from verse 7. Let me read it again. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness, show show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table continually. Just three things. Number one, we have protection. Do not fear, David said. And isn't that what the Father says to us? Fear not. How many times through the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, but especially the New Testament with Christ, fear not, for I am with you. All the way through to the end of the age, we have God's protection. We also have His provision. I will restore. And what has been restored to us, we have a renewed mind. We have the Spirit of God in us giving us insight and wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Oh, small to be sure. In a day to come, everything will be fully given, fully restored. We will be like Him. But right now, it's in the process of being restored. And that is your heritage. That is your inheritance as well.
I know life can derail, challenge, befuddle. I mean, we've just gone through a year and a half of utter chaos and nonsense and bad information and lying and deceiving, and it's not over. We're still in the middle of it. But God says, I will restore. I will restore. I will give to you, I will give back to you all that was taken from you. What was taken from us spiritually? Our fellowship and our communion with God. What has been restored to us spiritually? We now have peace with God through Christ Jesus. And thirdly, provision. You will eat at my table. Imagine this poor, lame, son of Jonathan eating at the royal table with all of David's great sons and the grandness of the royal room. And here comes Mephibosheth. Clump, clump, stump, stump, clump, clump, stump, stump, clump, clump, stump, stump, coming down the hallway and welcomed in. There, being there, not by birth, not even by royal uh, heritage, but because of chesed, because of kindness, and given a, a seat at that table. You practice the table here, I'm sure, regularly, a foretaste of that great table, that great marriage feast that will be ours, at which it will just be uproariously great, a celebration beyond all celebrations that have ever occurred. We will eat at the table of the king forever. Let's pray. Father, this is your story given to your people to remind us of your great kindness, your long-suffering, your oh-so-great salvation. You teach us these things. We read of these things. We hear and we understand of these things, certainly by precept. But thank you for this story that creates such a vivid picture in our minds that it is such a great treasure and that these riches, the riches of heaven are ours because of the great sacrifice of the Son, our Redeemer, our Mediator, the one with whom you had a covenant and so graciously include to protect us, to provide for us, and to give all of that, what is necessary in life. We give you thanks for all of these things. In the name of Jesus, amen.